0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the CFD's weekly podcast. This week, I'm joined by Sophie Gerber. Uh, Sophie is probably familiar to many of you, but she is the co-founder of Traction Fintech and the founder of Sophie Grace. Uh, so, Sophie, thanks for joining me. Uh, I think the best thing for us to do today, we'll be talking about various compliance and regulatory issues, which I'm sure you're all uh, very excited to hear about, and um, and I think, I guess the, the best, best thing for us to do is I will be like the idiot asking all of the dumb questions that everyone listening wants to ask, but maybe too afraid to ask. Um, but Sophie, maybe before we begin, just for people who aren't familiar with, with what Traction and Sophie Grace do, can you just explain a bit about that?
1: Yeah. So Sophie Grace is the business I started first so it's a business that operates in australia and we help people to obtain financial services licenses and also credit licenses but for your audience it's the financial services license which is the one that allows people to operate a uh, brokerage in australia and it's got some special conditions on it so we've been helping people to obtain those licenses for over a decade now and um we got some of some of the early early stage licences in Australia, and so we help people to get those licences and then to maintain those licences through uh, compliance policies, compliance meetings, interactions with ASIC uh, and AUSTRAC, the AML regulator. So yeah, it, it that's a big business and it's uh, evolved. Well, it's a big business in the sense that there's a lot a lot to be done in the CFDs. Uh, space in australia uh, and it's evolved a lot over the time we've been been operating in it so anyone who's um known anything about the industry would would understand that the industry globally evolved a lot so there's been been a lot involved um with doing that and we, we've seen a lot of change uh, the traction business is uh, an, a second business that uh, i run So we started that business in Australia, helping people to, or brokers especially, to um, meet the transaction reporting requirements which were introduced uh, in 2015. We then expanded that business to Europe and we've been helping people in Europe um, do the EMEA and MiFIR, and now SFTR reporting, which is uh, they're all forms of transaction reporting in Europe and then we've expanded it further into Canada, uh, at Singapore, and there's going to be a few other uh, regimes going live over the next few years as well. So um, we have a between those two businesses, we have a pretty strong presence in the CFD industry and, and understanding of, of a lot of the global regulations.
0: Great. And so to start off with, I think we're going to be talking about Google's financial services verification policy. Uh, so, can you talk about about that? What is that? What does that mean for brokers?
1: Yeah. So, it has been rolled out across the globe progressively, but it's recently been rolled out uh, in Australia um, in conjunction with ASIC. So, Google and ASIC have have collaborated on rolling that out. Which basically it now means that uh, anyone who is advertising financial products in Australia on Google. They can't do that to target an Australian audience unless they're licensed to do so. So you need to send through to Google in order to have your ads go live uh, details of your Australian Financial Services license. I haven't seen the extent to which Google is actually checking uh, that you have a license for the particular financial product that you're uh, trying to advertise i don't know that the policy has gotten that sophisticated yet but i do think in time that that will probably come uh so yeah it's a policy that that's making it harder to advertise financial products certainly to australians and similar for the uk and europe and around the world um it's getting harder uh, to to target people in regulated jurisdictions
0: so if you're an offshore broker going after someone in Australia, does that now mean advertising on Google is effectively not possible? Correct. And so is that causing problems for people, given that so many people are now going offshore?
1: Well, I think this is, this is where things are going. So you've got the regulation, which is sitting on one level, and then you've got these other participants, uh, such as Google, on the next level so even if you're operating a business that's um regulated offshore if you're and and you can survive with that uh, on a practical and functional level but but the reality is if you can't advertise it it then becomes a bit um or significantly more difficult to to make a viable business out of it so yeah it, it's becoming a bit chicken and the egg but i, I think they're they're becoming a second layer of, of regulation, which is is trying to protect Australians, and by the same token, it's, it's trying to protect the other um, jurisdictions where where it's being implemented. But I think it probably also is making more of an even playing field um, in places like Australia and, and Europe, because it means that regulated brokers have a fair shot at targeting people in those countries and offshore brokers. Can't
0: target those people as easily. Yeah. So, on just on a practical level, does that mean if you're trying to advertise with Google as a broker? Let's say I'm in Australia, um, and I, I am at ASIC regulated, and I want to advertise on, I don't know, just say Google search or something like that. Mm. So, I will have to go to Google and say. I'll go to Google and then say, I want to advertise on Google search. And they, will they then come back to me and go, okay, well, you need to submit proof that you have a license, proof that you have. Will it, will it just be proof that you have a license or like what sort of thing? Will they it's be just
1: at on? the moment, it, it's proof that you have a license. So they've, as far as I'm aware, they've built some sort of integration with, with the ASIC database. So you submit the details of your license and they, they go off and verify that. And then they let your ads, Go through and continue, um, continue to run. If you don't send that through, then they won't let the ads run. And yeah. well, they they'll let the ads run in jurisdictions where this policy isn't implemented. But for Australia, you won't be able to see those ads because they haven't provided uh, details of their license.
0: Yeah, would that apply to the app store as well? So if I wanna, if I have my own app, whether that's like through something I've made or some kind of white label where I get my own branded app in the store, will Google then say, um, okay, you can, maybe you can put it in and it, it will be downloadable in whatever region X, Y, Z, but in Australia, unless you show us you have the right license, we're not going to show it to people in the app store.
1: David, I don't know the answer to that question, <laughs> yeah. but if you invite me back next week, I can try and find the answer for you. I think the thing is for, for a lot of our clients that they're not running their own app they're running the the metatrader app uh directly and and that's uh throwing up issues of its own uh, in recent yep. times so yeah I, unfortunately i don't know the answer but I, I wouldn't be surprised if if it's not the case now that it becomes the case um soon
0: yeah Okay, well, maybe we'll move on to a similar but slightly different topic. So I think another one of the things you just mentioned was that Google has become like another layer of regulation. So it's almost like the enforcer beneath the actual regulator. But I think another another area where that's been true for quite a while is in in payments. So can you talk a bit about you know, Visa and MasterCard policies for brokers? Is there any, anything new and interesting there?
1: Look, I think the the policy has been running for quite some time, but I think it does keep evolving. So what we're seeing more recently uh, with not so much. Well, yeah, with Visa and MasterCard, uh, they're implementing it through the the banks uh, that they operate that are operating on the system. So we're seeing requests coming through from banks uh, and from other payment providers saying, to financial services firms can you send us a, a legal advice confirming uh, that you have the correct license to operate in Australia and second of all that you're complying with your license so the first one is something that i think is easy to say if if it can be said about about a firm that they have the correct license for us as a law firm it, it's particularly difficult for us to to write an attestation that a firm is, is compliant because that re- requires quite a significant audit. So at the moment we've been working through versions of the letters that that we send back to the banks. And I think they're still trying to determine what they wanna do with the, that information and what they're really trying to find out. But they are starting to implement these further policies of, of making sure that, that the firms that they're letting operate on their systems are in compliance, which is a a step beyond what they were doing before, which is, well, we're a payments provider, we take money and we send it to the person who we've taken it on behalf of. Uh, They've just added this extra layer of of regulation uh, that people have to to meet in order to use their services. And I think it's becoming, to the extent that it wasn't already becoming quite difficult, uh, to operate and, and to meet the standards of it, it's certainly um, becoming quite prohibitive. And, and what we're seeing is that there's a lot of our clients out there who basically have at least one full-time person, if not multiple people, um, managing their, their payment provider relationships.
0: Wow. So if you, I mean, one of the things you just said was that they will, there's really two elements. So they'll ask to see your licence, which seems quite straightforward, but they'll also ask you, ask you to, prove that you're meeting I mean how do you how do it seems like asking to prove a negative almost right like how do you prove that you're meeting the standards required surely if yeah. you have the license you're meeting the standards rather than otherwise you wouldn't well, have the license <laughs> Maybe yeah
1: not. I mean this is this is the thing about about the issue when you've got Google and Visa and MasterCard sort of starting to play in the space of the regulator it throws up a lot of big conceptual issues. Um, because, yeah, if someone has, has a licence, uh, it's really up to the, the actual regulator to say if they're not, not meeting the licence or up to the system that the regulator's put in place. For you to put, to come in and put an extra layer of um, regulation or requirements or your perception or judgement on top of that, um, it, it, it becomes quite problematic and difficult. And to prove that you are meeting your license, well, that's one thing for a company to do. I think it's it's another thing where a law firm uh, on the Sophie Gray side, it's difficult for us to make an attestation on behalf of a client that they're compliant. Um, that's that's a big statement to make without going in there and doing a full scale audit. And even then, it, it's difficult to say um, on behalf of somebody. Um, and it is more more the job of an auditor. So, I mm. think there's there's still some some ways ways to go on final finessing that that policy. Um, I mean, one of the recent interesting cases, not in the CFD space, but but in Australia, was um, the casino, the Star Casino, had a quite a large inquiry take place. I think it was last year, where the um, I think it was the CFO or the the Treasurer of Star told Visa and MasterCard through their bank, which was the National Australia Bank, um, that the funds which were being taken off the credit card of all these high rollers was for um, accommodation and um, food and beverage purposes, when actually (laughs) they knew perfectly well that what the money coming off um, the credit cards was for, was for gambling. So they'd lied. Uh, to the bank in order to keep their banking relationship going and that obviously came to light and those people got got put in basically the witness box and had to admit that they knew they were lying to the bank and that they'd made false statements um, and you can see that, that that's potentially something um, that, that could go wrong in the future yeah. for, for brokers um, it's not outside the realms of possibility um, especially if if brokers are coming up with workarounds um, yeah. to get banking relationships and Visa Mastercard relationships using some other type of company coded in a, in a different way.
0: Yeah. I can't imagine that happening. That would just be crazy. In the, and yeah. Well, anyway. <laughs> yeah, where
1: there's a will, there's a way, generally.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so in one of the... Uh, well, so an, an analogy I drew um, a couple of weeks ago after the stuff with, with Metatrader happened and it was take, taken off Apple App Store was that um, if you look at the, the adult film industry, the payments companies have kind of become like a de facto regulator. And that so Financial Times did this investigation in the summer and they did quite a good series on it actually where they ultimately found that like payments companies have this kind of... It, internal document which they will actually give to companies and say you can't do this you can't do this you can't do this so i mean i suppose there's two questions so one from the if you were the if you were a visa or mastercard why like where are their standards coming from is the regulator going to them and saying you need to tell companies that they can't do this they can't do this can't do this or are they internally going um, okay, if you want to use our services, you have to meet this, this, and this standard. So, I mean, if you just if you you were saying right that they they require you to to, to prove that you're meeting certain standards, but surely to prove they must have some set of standards themselves in order to, for you to be able to prove that, right? Does that make sense? Mm,
1: yeah, I think there's there's two sides of it. There's the the industries that they'll accept and the industries that they won't accept where that is coming from i couldn't say because i don't work at visa and mastercard i think it's probably coming from things that they've determined for themselves for whatever reason so porn gambling um i don't know what else is on their their blacklist i'm sure there's there's a few other things um i think they probably they've got shareholder pressures um they might have some sort of general corporate risk thresholds that they're not willing to accept. Then you've got the second level, which is, well, if, if it is an accepted industry, but maybe it's on their higher, higher risk end of, of their spectrum, what's what's their standards that they're implementing? And again, I think they're still working through that. I don't think they, they fully know because if you're Visa and MasterCard, how do you really know Um the acceptable standards for a, for a CFD broker, unless you get a CFD specialist in, which I'm sure they haven't. Uh, so I think that's something that they're working through. Uh, but I do think fundamentally, them making these calls, um, it is fraught with um, conflicts of interest and, and potential, potential problems down the line uh, for Visa and MasterCard and especially for Google.
0: Yeah. Okay, well, to, to move on to a, a different topic, um, so uh, from what I understand, there's some litigation those in play against brokers in Australia. Um, so could you, one, maybe talk about what that litigation is and then also what does it mean for the industry in Australia or even beyond Australia if it's relevant for that?
1: Yeah, so in about... October last year, they introduced a lot of product or an extra layer of product suitability across basically the entire financial services space in Australia so that it means that instead of each individual person coming along to a a financial services provider uh, and getting a copy of the disclosure documents and making a decision if they want a particular product, there's now a layer of obligation which is put on the provider to determine that the client is suitable to receive their product. So there's a general regulation shift which is happening, which is from um, buyer beware that uh, you've just got to, the buyers can be aware of what they're buying by, um, they can be aware of what they're buying by the documents that you give them and you're telling them everything, uh, shifting towards... Uh, product providers need to be more responsible and that's a global phenomenon so in Australia it came in last year but but in Europe uh, and the UK it's been in place for for a couple of years now so Mm -hmm. since uh, it got introduced in Australia uh, there was a group of clients that suffered quite significant losses with the broker uh, and they've brought a class action against the broker in this instance, it's uh, the first one's been CMC saying, you should never have sold us this product. You knew perfectly well we weren't suitable to receive this product. And then on the basis that we weren't suitable and then went on to lose money, um, you have to pay us back all of our losses. Uh, and probably there's a layer of compensation on top of that too. So that's a that's a class action that's ongoing, it takes a while for anything to, to filter through the court system here and um, in most jurisdictions around the world. So we're not quite sure where that that's going to end up. But I do think it, it's problematic um, for all industry participants and not just in CFDs, but really for for anyone uh, in financial services. So I mean, depending on what happens, um, say, in the worst, what what I would call the worst case scenario uh, for our clients and and for financial services providers is that the brokers the case will run to trial, and eventually the court will find that uh, the broker should have known better uh, than to issue the products to these particular clients, and they have to pay back the losses. Uh, that's going to make it a lot more difficult well they, they're they going to lose all of that that money obviously in the payback but it's going to make it a lot more difficult to accept clients in Australia because it's going to further narrow uh, the criteria that can be used in order to accept a client so I don't know what criteria CMC used or applied but but any criteria having to be applied is, is going to be quite quite difficult I think we're all quite used to Just being able to issue clients, issue products to clients who come along and want it, having to uh, put in place criteria whether you can accept a client or not um, is quite Mm. problematic. So that's the worst Mm. case scenario. So uh, we're hoping not to get there, but your your second possible scenario, um, not being close to the litigation, so I'm not sure, but I'm speaking as an outsider is, for example, that it it gets uh, settled at mediation uh, and some sort of payment gets made to to the clients after a mediation process. The problem with with that is that it will lead to copycat copycat litigation being launched against um, brokers by any groups of clients that have lost money. Uh, So, yeah, both of those outcomes uh, aren't good. Yeah. The best possible outcome, of course, would be that even though it's the most expensive and, and protracted, I guess, is that for the whole industry, the case runs to to trial and CMC wins uh, and that that creates a strong precedent that, um, you know, if you've accepted a client and you've applied criteria which which is eminently sensible and, and appropriate uh, and the client went on to lose money that you haven't haven't done anything wrong and, and no compensation or loss payback is, is payable. So we're watching that space, but yeah, naturally uh, for people in the industry that it's tricky and um and it's worrying. And the difficult thing is that the the best outcome for the industry as a whole is not necessarily the cheapest and best outcome in this case uh, for yeah. the person who's or the firm who's being sued. Uh, and that that's the case in in a lot of a lot of situations but on one level you almost want to try and um yeah if the case could successfully be run to trial is, is get everyone to to pull in some money and all and participate <laughs> in in helping them win the case because it's to everyone's benefit if, if they do win
0: yeah but sure, I mean, the, the, so I, I've noticed that a similar thing happening in the UK um, actually literally this week where in my day job, um, I won't go into a huge amount of detail, but basically that we've had working with someone and the, the fear they have about targeting a retail audience um, because they might not understand the product is, was was to my mind, crazy. I've, ne- I've never really seen that before. Mm. Um, I, mean, well, I mean, I understand why. But, um, the, I mean, there's two two things that I find confusing about it. One is that if you've worked with retail, you know that the, there is no real, like, average customer, to my mind. Like every, there's a huge group of people. Some of them have loads of experience. Some of them have not very much experience. But in terms of the, how you target them, it's always, quite, it's always quite a similar process. Obviously, if you find some kind of avenue where there's more sophisticated investors and that's something else but how do you if assuming that this goes i don't know that this person wins or whatever it might be how do you actually then go think about targeting customers because it's like well okay if i if i can only target someone who's suitable how do you know who's suitable if you're using some kind of mass market thing and then that the other the other problem i have with this and uh i you know defend the brokers on this point is that presumably if this person had made a lot of money rather than lost a lot of money they're still the same person I, d- I doubt they would be coming back and going you know what actually <laughs> this product wasn't suitable <laughs> for me please take my money back that I made from you
1: yeah of course of course <laughs> I mean it's there's I, I don't I can't say that I necessarily agree from a fundamental standpoint with how where the legislation and regulation around the world's gone, because because it does just become so difficult f- for a product provider to do anything. It's difficult for us as a compliance and legal firm to, to give advice. It goes from being quite black and white to very much shades of gray. Where can you advertise? Who can you give the clients? To, like Which clients can you target? which clients can you let accept your product? Um, yeah, it, it's particularly difficult. And then there's also, well, you can take the, even a further step back and say, well, it becomes a bit nanny state, frankly. And if if somebody turns around and says they want to buy a CFD, well, they have, they might have their reasons uh, mm. if, if that's what they want to do, uh, if that's what they like to do with their time, if that's what they like to do with their money and th- They've read read the material. You've given the materials and they read it or not read it. Um, I'm a lawyer and, frankly, I don't even read the the material that I get given for financial (laughs) products. But by the same token, that doesn't mean I think that I shouldn't have been given the financial product. Um, If I want it, I'd be very resentful if someone said, sorry, you're not appropriate for this product. You can't have it. Um, And I think that's the difficulty is the government basically imposing what they think people can and can't have and do with their their time and, and their investments so yeah. maybe over time it will it will switch back but yeah i think we're sort of deep in in nanny state regulation for now um, and it will yeah. take a bit of an uprising from from the general public before <laughs> i think it will um, you know, people are going to have to start being mad that they can't have. I mean, I have think a of all the thousand
0: to one leverage. <laughs> there is a
1: thousand to one leverage, but then there's look at all the other financial products that there are. There's, you know, yeah. mining stocks in Australia. They can go from a dollar to one cent pretty quickly. So, no, are cute. they going yeah. to stop? Are they going to stop mining stocks from from being made available to every mum and dad? It's probably just as bad. You can lose money just as quickly.
0: Um, yeah. and probably I mean, a few others yeah I, mean, I think there's a problem we also saw when I was at free trade which is that from the product development point of view and I'm not talking about securities or derivatives or whatever, I'm talking about the actual like software a lot of the time you're just trying to make something that's better but it, the, the, what, what is better? Better is usually like it's easier to use, it's simpler to understand all that kind of stuff and so from internally you're going okay well this is great we're making a better product people like it and so on but then from the outside people go oh you're trying to gamify the investment process and mm. you're making it way too easy to invest and then and so that you're actually trying to screw over your customers and all this kind of stuff and you go okay but that's definitely not what like not what the goal was it's almost yeah. like it's complicated i suppose yeah there's just there's where do you draw the line on these sorts of things? I don't know, difficult one.
1: Yeah, it's it's tricky. It, it's very tricky. But um, in the CFD space, as you know, what, what a lot of it has led to is people moving to obtain products offshore, which um, has its own problems and dangers. And that doesn't seem to necessarily have been factored in uh, that mm. if you can't get what you want, in the UK or Australia, you go and get it from somewhere else. And that leaves clients even more exposed than they were at the beginning or would have been if if they'd just traded uh, the same product with an ASIC broker uh, under the careful wings of ASIC or the FCA or SISEC or or whoever. So um, the the not in my backyard policy that the regulators are running um, yeah, it's it's hurting hurting everyone. I think it's hurting hurting staff. It's hurting those economies. It's hurting clients. Yeah, can't see much yeah. upside except for the regulators <laughs> themselves going. Oh, nothing bad's happened on my plate. I'll go off for lunch now.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> so yeah, maybe we can move on to a slightly different topic, which is, I mean, one of the one of the big themes as of the past few years is brokers moving into new products so at that one would be like share share trading usually it's something like commission free share trading um and then cryptocurrencies as well so what sort of what 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 sort of problems does that pose if any from a from a regulatory angle what sort of things are you seeing
1: yeah so in australia at the moment cryptocurrencies like direct cryptocurrencies buying a Bitcoin or buying an Ethereum, uh, those are not considered financial products. So if you purchase one of those through a regulated entity with ASIC, actually that regulated entity doesn't have the same obligations for your client money and for the way it treats you and um, for its general um, product, uh, sorry, professional indemnity, Insurance requirements for your capacity to complain to the Financial Complaints Authority. So there's a lot of um, benefits of buying a financial product from a regulated firm that that you won't get for buying an unregulated product through that firm. So the difficulty is that if you turn up to to MetaTrader or to to one of these firms, it hasn't been abundantly clear uh, that that's the case. And so I think there's, there's a bit of confusion and probably potential for a bit of letdown over time uh, in those products. So that's the first thing for for direct cryptos. I think crypto derivatives is something that people have moved into, uh, and those are regulated products because they're derivatives. So um, it remains to be seen, I think, how the cryptocurrency regulation uh, evolves in Australia um, over the next few years. There's a bit of talk about um, where that's where that's going to land. But for now, um, it's, a, it's a diversification by brokers. But I think clients aren't fully aware and I think brokers to some extent aren't fully aware of, of the implications um, of, of the offering these products to people and, and how and being clear to them how they're different from financial products.
0: And so, on. The, and what about on the share dealing side? Is that just like very straightforward, or is it got any problems attached to it as well?
1: It doesn't have the same sort of scale of problems. The problems are more operational product, like operational problems, um, and getting that to align with um, the rest of your business and and the revenue models significantly different as well. So um, the revenue's not as high um, and it's a different type of client. I think that people are getting for direct share trading as opposed to to CFDs. So it's a different way of, of marketing to clients. It's a different way of retaining clients um, and monetizing those people in the long-term. Um, even though you keep the client for longer, um, monetizing them to the same extent uh, is is a bit more difficult, so sort of a running two cultures at once almost um, yeah.
0: but can you yeah. if you're um if you're marketing a share dealing product, my understanding is that the restrictions on its advertising are not the same as for a cFd one is that true so if you uh if you wanted to advertise imagine you have both cFds and shares and it's costing you less and you have less restrictions uh, on the share dealing side, it seems mm. like that would be quite good. That would be quite positive, right? Because you can go, okay, we have, even if you're not making money on it, it's quite it's like a cheaper and maybe more effective way of onboarding people. But I, d- I don't know if that's true. That's just in oh,
1: theory. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. The, the advertising regulations and probably the, the onboarding of those clients is, um, A lot simpler than cfds in australia that's definitely the case um so whether you can then and and how you can then cross market uh to your derivative cfd product you'd have to look at that um, quite carefully i'm not sure that it's as simple as as you make out but I, i definitely take your point um you've got a much more qualified audience at that point but whether you can um, just go and throw the advertising straight in their face um i'd have to give that some thought there's probably a way you could a way you could do it but um generally i think what we've seen is that there's sort of different modules that, that people activate um depending on you know different types of client onboarding for direct equities versus
0: versus CFDs. Okay. But I mean, another area there that I think is interesting or would be of interest to people listening is payment for order flow, which is, I mean that if you're in, if you're in the U S that's basically how most of Mm. those brokers are making their money. And for, I guess for people, I think most people listening would probably understand that, but in simple terms, it's like you send your flow in cash equities to a market maker And the market maker gives you like a kind of rebate for doing that effectively. But it's prohibited. It's definitely prohibited in the UK. Um, Is is that true also in Australia? I think it is, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most of the regulators have prohibited it uh, in in one way or another. Um, But then they're looking at it um, as to being a little bit more specific about how they're going to to treat that kind of activity moving forward there's definitely um you know a lack of understanding from clients and i think even sort of more generally across the industry about what that concept is and particularly what the potential downsides are for the clients relative to just paying commission uh, rather than the payment for order flow model so i think over time we'll we're going to be seeing a fair fair bit of movement in that space which is kind it's kind of similar to your um buy now pay later there's all these hidden costs the consumer thinks that they're just they're ahead but actually they're, they're probably not ahead it just means that um everyone's paying a little bit extra uh to have this wonderful funding method going um yep. so yeah we'll we'll see what happens but um your robin hoods and and the payment for order flow firms um, that are out there I think it probably have numbered days to some extent
0: even in the US do you think because it seems I've never really understood the hatred that it has like it doesn't it just seems like if you're if you're a c- customer and you're buying um, I don't know like an an s p 500 ETF the amount that you're paying you know the, the amount that your broker is getting as a as a rebate, is like tiny and if you're just holding for 10 years or something like that it's kind of like okay well how much did it really cost you probably not that much did it really you probably assuming markets performed well probably did fine i've never really understood why it gets so much so much stick i mean maybe maybe i'm wrong can you am i wrong (laughs) yeah i
1: mean there's certainly some quite detailed papers and analysis that have been put out by regulators on it i'm not the um I'm not the be-all and end-all of knowledge on this space. Um, but I think the point that I think there's, you've also got to consider that if they're not making that much money off it uh, and it hasn't cost you that much, then where are these firms making the money? And I either they're making money somewhere else or there's not sufficient longevity of this firm. Um, those, those are your two options. The firm's either going to go bust or they're probably using your your data for for some some different purpose that you're not really quite across, which may not bother you at first. But I think people are becoming more more aware and um, conscious that they might not like um, even de-identified information being used about their trades and and about what they're doing.
0: Yeah. So in theory, could you if you're um, let's say regulated an ASEC, and then you have some kind of offshore entity, um, or you're dealing with some kind of offshore entity. Could could you send your flow to the offshore entity and get payment for order flow that way? Or would it still be prohibited? Because I've heard from some some people. I know Robin Hood. I think tried that in the UK, um, and I think got told they weren't allowed to do it. But uh, but I think if you're, I think it seems like. A lot of brokers, definitely in the UK, who are doing cash equities, they are not benefiting from it, but they are effectively dealing with firms who are getting payment for order flow. Right? So they'll they have a they'll have an agreement with a clearing broker in the US, and they'll send all their US trades to this person, and that put that broker is then they're not sending the rebate to the UK, but that person is still mm. benefiting from payment for order flow. So I don't know if there's some way that system could be structured where the company actually getting the flow gets the gets the money. And it would be okay, but I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly the one thing that ASIC like to throw around um, feels like even pronoun- more pronounced recently is is one of the overarching obligations of the Corporations Act, which is that you have to act efficiently, honestly, and fairly. And I think that <laughs> that scenario that you're you're talking about probably is efficient for the firm, but. I, feels a little dishonest and unfair on another level as well potentially or at least asic would be able to find a way to tell you that it is Um, so that would be my first response to that but there there might be even more detailed provisions in there that that would pick you up on it as well Uh, there's also um, provisions around conflicted remuneration uh, which are pretty broad they're kind of like structured like um, tax legislation um provisions and and they're broad they pick up arrangements offshore if you're sitting in Australia and you know about them and somehow benefit so yeah sounds like a good scheme though David you're quite um innovative (laughs) I have to say (laughs) if Um, I had a CFD business I would hire you for sure (laughs)
0: thank you well yeah maybe we can maybe that can happen down the line or maybe someone listening <laughs> who wants some yeah. kind of weird co- corporate structure to benefit from uh illicit client order flow then you know where to get in touch but uh and and that's uh, probably a good point as well <laughs> at which for us to stop so sophie thanks very much for joining me thank and, you uh, thanks for having me yeah no problem and hopefully we'll chat again soon and thanks everyone for listening
1: be great thank you